0: ladies and gentlemen welcome i am the illustrious host of the most innkeeper freddie give you the rundown innkeepers guestbook podcast recorded at union inn 1112 1114 third street northeast washington dc we are steps to noma that metro nice little brisk walk to union station and a leisurely jog to capitol capitol hill where unfortunately the shutdown is in its what second week now third week my apologies yeah so hopefully we'll get it all together i have with us our i want to say second museum professional that's come to stay with us at the end uh even amidst the shutdown with the smithsonian closed and we will get to that uh joseph valencia how you doing
1: good good and you
0: doing well man doing well so uh joseph's been with us for the last what three days
1: Three or four days Yeah four days Four days
0: Because uh, he does a program At uh, East Los Angeles College uh, It's a Smithsonian Undergrad uh, Internship program Where they mm-hmm. basically uh, Want to serve as a pipeline For minorities uh, To get into Museum The whole museum Art studies pipeline uh, And that means They could be They want to be a curator They want to be an archivist They want to be Tour guide or They want to be a fundraiser All that good stuff Uh I think it's a wonderful program. Mm-hmm. So uh, tell me more about the program.
1: Yeah. So um, like I said, we're at Los, East Los Angeles College. Um, our college is our student body is predominantly students of color, um, about more than two thirds. Um, Latino students, uh, a lot of Mexican and Central American students. And then um, another maybe see 15 percent of it are Asian-American. So Chinese um, Japanese, Korean students. So, um, in thinking about museums and the the profession, um, diversity and inclusion is a big, big uh, area of discussion right now. Um, particularly at the national level, there's been a couple studies coming out in the past uh, couple years, surveying demographics. And um, I think our museum, our school is special because we have a museum on campus. I think we're the only um, two level, two year public school in the state of California that has its own museum with a permanent collection. Oh Wow. So that was very attractive to the Smithsonian when we were thinking about this program. Um, And so we've partnered with two institutions or agencies at the Smithsonian, one being the internship office um, and the Smithsonian Latino Center, both um, working with us in our school to create this program. So it has an unofficial focus on Latino students and just based off of our student body, but it's not specifically um, tied to anything. Okay. Yeah.
0: So how long has the program been around?
1: We launched it actually last year in 2018. So this is our second year, and um, it's a small program. Only three to five students participate each year. And um, the goal is to continue and to build it and expand it and also integrate it within to the college curriculum. So now we're talking with deans and faculty to see figure out can we make this a certificate program or maybe even a, an associate's degree. Um, but that's going to take a couple of years to get some of that. You know, curriculum takes a while to develop. But the goal is that this is just one part of a bigger program that trains students in the museum studies profession early on. Yeah. Good. Yeah. So I mentioned that it's a two-year. Um, public school. Okay. So a lot of the students in the school transfer out to four-year colleges and universities to get their bachelor's degrees. So before when they're here with us they're just gen- they're studying two years of course or um, getting an associate's degree for transfer. So it's really important to engage students early on so that when they get to say I don't know UCLA or whatever school it is that they are then kind of tailoring their courses towards something that they've already ex- um, experience through our program exactly yeah
0: and that's actually really good um it's actually considering the skyrocketing costs of uh education a lot of four-year institutions yeah. it's actually a smart way to go mm-hmm. uh to 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 get a lot of the the, the core cor- coursework as well as uh the beginnings of wherever you think your major is going mm-hmm. to be uh, so you can have a leg up on a lot of people going into your junior and senior year
1: yeah that's the positive i mean the negative that some students maybe if they don't get enough guidance early on they might stay in the community college level for a number of years but our hope is that by engaging them early on that we can start mentoring them and then hopefully that they can already start charting their own path to get ready for transfer or are understanding what kind of field or career they want to pursue
0: and so do you find the the students that are in this program already knew they wanted to get into museum studies or is this something that is like oh there's this program and they find out about it and then next thing you know
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it's mixed. Um, our first year we worked with, we had students in the program that we had already worked with at our museum, that had been tour guides at our museum. So they had already a sense that they wanted to work in some kind of arts and culture organization. This year, we actually opened it up to the entire um, college campus. So students outside of art could apply. We actually have um, undecided students in the program this year who have maybe completed maybe only one semester. Of study and um, then that's a good that's a different challenge because then we make it an exploratory program right they're learning about social sciences they're learning about history they are learning about art uh, the business side of things all these things come together to to form museums just as there's curators there's also people that are running finance and accounting and HR and all these things so um, we're open to making it an open program an exploratory program like I mentioned because a lot of the students at these two-year institutions are exploring they're taking coursework that maybe are not specifically in their, say, certificate or associate's degree pipeline, but they're just taking different courses to figure out what they like. And so we're hoping that um we can cater to that, too.
0: Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure for, for any of them, uh, the experience at the Smithsonian has, has, has to be invaluable mm-hmm. because of the contacts that you'll make out there, you know, uh, it's always good that when you're uh, if, if they decide to, to want to work for any Smithsonian branch in the future. There's someone they can call so that it becomes a warm application as opposed yeah, to a cold. cold absolutely.
1: Down. And and you know we have a student from the first year program who had already has already transferred to another four-year school and is actually finishing up coursework now. And um, she was saying actually I'm thinking about if there are any other Smithsonian opportunities maybe with students with bachelor's degrees. And I said you already know the main manager at the internships and fellowships office. You just call her up and say, hey, is there anything else that I could apply to? So this is really um, important in terms of connecting them with people.
0: Yeah, that's great. So um, the museum that you have at your school, mm-hmm. you said that I believe you're the only public college that has its own on-site museum?
1: So community college. Okay. So um, so when I say community college, I mean the two-year okay. institutions. Yeah. So a lot of um, both community colleges and state, um, you know, colleges and universities they have galleries and and the larger schools have museums but community colleges generally just have a gallery and um we used to have a gallery but you know over our course of our development of our school we've expanded and we don't have just a gallery we have a seven gallery three-story museum on a two-year generally two-year um academic institution you know so it's 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 very different you know we we don't have um any people, any other institutions that kind of have our same setup. So I think that was very exciting for the Smithsonian when we were starting to have initial conversations about making an internship program.
0: Yeah. And you said seven galleries
1: yeah so different you know rooms spaces yeah that's 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 huge Mm -hmm. so what's the name of this museum so the museum is called the vincent price art museum at east los angeles college (laughs) 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 yeah (laughs) michael jackson's thriller right there (laughs) uh best laugh in the history of of laughs that's how i knew who who vincent price was because of thriller i mean other people knew from his movies or other things uh, but, but what people don't realize is that aside from being an actor um, and featured on Michael Jackson's Thriller, that he was an art collector. And the story goes that he became an actor to get money in order to buy art.
0: That's how a lot of it is. You so, know, people, people find their profession a lot of times just so they can support their, their hobby or their, whatever their true passion is.
1: Yeah, and he actually had an art history degree. He studied, um, I believe it was at Yale, he studied art history as an undergraduate. So it's interesting to think about, you know, what we know about him, what we don't know about him. but. He was a big promoter of the arts, and he really um, was committed to creating opportunities for people to connect with art from and different types of people. So, um, for example, um, I think around the 50s, he was invited to East Los Angeles College just to be a, a speaker, like a commencement speaker for a graduation. You know, they invite different you know people to talk to the students, and he just fell in love with the campus, and at that time, he had realized that there really wasn't any sort of arts and culture spaces. I mean, not spaces, but like opportunities for people to connect with objects and students specifically. So he built a connection with ELAC, well, we, that's what we'd call the school. And over the course of his life, he, he and his wife donated, um, pieces of their collection to the school. So at that time it was just a gallery. So we did have a single room gallery and that's very common for community colleges. And they named the gallery after him. So it was the Vincent and Mary Price gallery. Um, the muse- the gallery operated like that for over 50 years and, um, probably around 10 years ago, the, the college started redeveloping, getting new buildings, you know, fixing up the campus. And that's when, um. They created a new uh, performing and fine arts complex, and part of that, the cornerstone of it, was the museum. Okay. So now we're the Vincent Price Art Museum. There you go. Yeah.
0: And so, are a lot of his pieces still? I'm sorry, a lot of pieces from his collection still Mm -hmm. on display there?
1: Yeah. So um, historically, I mean, the museum in that building's—we've only been there for maybe eight years, eight nine years in that building. Um, The third floor was all permanent collection. So we had uh, three gallery spaces that just were different exhibitions, thematic exhibitions connected to his collection, and he collected things from all around the world. So things from ancient Mexico, ancient Egypt, to living artists in LA during his time. So you have artists from the 50s, 60s, 70s that are pretty important to Los Angeles that are in our collection. And so we had different exhibitions, like I said. One we have that's still up is are art of the ancient Americas, form and function in the ancient Americas. And what's interesting with that is a lot of students in history, social sciences, ethnic studies, use that gallery. The professors take the students there because the the things that they have on display. And um, it's special because some of those things you can only uh, see either at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art or the Natural History Museum, which are a little further. They're more s- central or even um, more west side of Los Angeles. And so to have it on the east side and walking distance from their classroom is really incredible and a very important part of um, their learning experience.
0: I'm sure. So are there any pieces from his collection that are uh, of note from an international repute? Like there's people that might go when they if they're visiting Mm. L.A. and they're an art, you know, aficionado, they would go just to see this piece.
1: Yeah. uh, No, I wouldn't say that. I mean, we have a lot of important artists represented, especially like. Mexican modernists, um, like we have um, Rufio Tamayo, who's a printmaker. Um, we have a lot of um, LA artists, but not on display anymore. So, Reese, a couple year, a two year, two plus years ago, we the museum got a new director, whose focus has been um, contemporary art, living artists, art and history since maybe the '40s to the present. So we changed some of our gallery spaces, and so a lot of what we do now is contemporary art from um, the United States, from Southern California. And we feature a lot of artists from Latin America, um, Latino artists in Los Angeles, Asian American artists in Los Angeles, as well as um, artists from the Asian Pacific region. And that's because of our student body. We're directly um, crafting our programs to reflect our student body and the constituency. So um, where our school is located in the museum, it's on the border of East Los Angeles College and Monterey Park, which are bi- two huge, um, basically, um, historically, areas that have both Latinos and Asian Americans in L.A. So we're really at the nexus, right, the convergence of these two parts of town. So it makes a lot of sense for us to, to serve that reflect the people that we serve. Yeah, that's in. great.
0: So you said there's a performing uh, performing arts side to the
1: yeah, it's the Performing and Fine Arts Complex. So we're one building, and so we our building is all of the three stories that I mentioned, all the galleries. We also have a lecture hall, which the art history faculty, they teach courses in there from anything, you name it, in their curriculum. But the building next to us is the Performing Art building. So we have theater and dance, um, architecture in there, and um, costume design. So together we make this big complex, which is right on the corner of our campus.
0: Now, most of the performances that happen in the Performing Arts Center, are those uh, student mm-hmm. run productions or do you have performances from people outside of the university?
1: No, they're out? mostly student things. Sometimes we'll host um, different people. I know recently we hosted um, a one man show of um, a man by the name of Dan Guerrero. He's a very important um, he's a very important gay Latino uh playwright and and theater and director and so he has this one night one man show called gay tino so uh and he was an he's an alumnus of the school so they brought him in and that's nice and he did his show and for the for the students basically i mean everything is number one audience first and foremost is the students and then everyone else um, comes after that so sometimes they do things outside of the school but for the most part it's foregrounded in their studies
0: all right Mm-hmm. Uh, there was an article that uh, was on dcist, dcist.com, mm-hmm.
1: talking about how do the
0: shutdown Smithsonian's closed. And because of that, private museums um, have their numbers up. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, how has the shutdown affected this program, considering you all work with the Smithsonian? Yeah,
1: it's, it's been really tough, actually. I mean, the majority, I mean, if you know, if you walk down, you know, down the National Mall, you'll see that a lot of the museums are closed. Smithsonian museums are closed. And a lot of the federal staff members are on furlough means they're unauthorized to work. And we, the way our program works is that we place students directly with a mentor in that person's department. So they're doing whatever that person's doing. So if they're working with the curator, whatever that curator is doing for the four weeks that their students are here, that's what they do. And we had made assignments, placements with the students across different institutions. And these were planned, you know, months in advance. We had students Set up at the National Portrait Gallery at the um, uh, Smithsonian uh, National Museum of American History, and unfortunately, the staff are not authorized to work. So we had to find alternatives. Um, we're really grateful to our colleagues in the internship office um, because that what they did is they had to find staff members that are Smithsonian staff members whose positions are not federally funded. So there's a couple in each office. So say there's a team of 12 people in a department, maybe one or two are what they call trust employees. So their, their positions are funded through fundraising or um, private means, but they still work in the Smithsonian. But unfortunately, three out of the four students that we had had to get last minute placements um, within really the week before they even arrived here. Wow. They didn't know their duties until they got here. Which pr- last year, I mean, we gave, we matched students with what their interests are, and we had outlined entire goals and duties, activities for them. And, you know, now we really had to um, work on the fly to get it together, almost to a point where it was almost a canceled program oh, because man. of the shutdown. Sure um, to pull off that Audible. We had colleagues that <laughs> had to step up. And someone from a research center that does program administration says, well, we're not really a museum, but we work with a lot of museums. So let's see how the student can learn in this way in terms of programming or planning. So, you know, it would be
0: really interesting to see if because they're the students that are here now during Mm -hmm. the shutdown are really getting an inside look at Mm -hmm. how this whole thing works. Yeah, that um, they may not necessarily even know to Mm -hmm. look for. Much less be exposed to.
1: Well, yeah, and they're and seeing how staff have to work under these conditions. The ones that are still, you know, working. You know, a lot of them are not. But it's uh, it's a big learning experience. Everything in this program has been a learning experience for both the students and us staff that are coordinating it.
0: I wouldn't be surprised if the students that are involved in this year's cohort uh, mm-hmm. have a special affinity with the people they work with because you know, even if they call them say two three years from now. Hey, remember me? I was like, oh yeah, during the shutdown, everything during was the crazy. Shutdown. You know? No,
1: absolutely. There's one student who's working in the Smithsonian digitization office, where they they digitize the whole collection and make it available online. In that entire office, the only people working there is one, you know, digitization specialist, a program manager, and then the director of the whole program. Wow. So one student is with three people that are, and everyone else's cannot work. You know, so she has direct access to the director of the whole program. You know, which is incredible, you incredible. know, she can take, you know, go on lunch with them or, or have meetings with them. And, and like for
0: an entire month. Yeah. For that's, the entire month. That's invaluable. I mean,
1: unless things change and then the staff come back. But for the time being, you know, this week, I mean, it doesn't seem like it's going to change.
0: So if a student came and said, hey, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I know the shut like say next week shutdown's done.
1: Mm-hmm. say, uh,
0: I know you want, want me to, you know, go to where you originally had me, but I really like where I'm at right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, would Would there be any issue with them staying?
1: Actually, so what we ended up doing was making their temporary placements, their permanent placements. Okay. And, you know, we had wanted them to go to where they originally positioned, you know. But in talking with the internship office, because four, month, four weeks is such a short period of time, we don't want them to change halfway and then spend another week adjusting to a new environment. So where they're at is where they're going to stay for the rest of the month. And the hopes is that they can make the most and get a deeper experience in where they're at instead of, you know, focusing efforts on adjusting to a new place. So, I mean, it, it, it's unfortunate. Of course, we would like them to be in the working with the art and history collections in museums, but they're still working on projects and collections just in research centers and in different initiatives, strategic initiatives across the Smithsonian.
0: So assuming that a year from now the shutdown is over, mm-hmm. um, let's say a student that's involved in
1: this year's cohort, wants
0: to come back next year and say, Hey, you know, the original thing that I was doing mm-hmm. or that I was planned to do mm-hmm. were the shutdown out here. I would like to try that during the next internship. Mm-hmm. Have you all given any thought to, to, to that?
1: No, we haven't. I mean, like I said, this program's new. So the first year was we select handpicked our students. The second year we had an open application to the, all the campus. I imagine that students won't probably won't be repeating through the program. So it might be difficult to, you know, have them come back here. I don't I don't know how likely it is within the confines of how the program exists now. However, um, like I said, one of our main partners is the Office of Fellowships and Internships, and they're connected directly with one of the program managers. So I wouldn't it's not too far fetched to say that they could connect with them with and them. still create an internship or maybe a summer internship okay. um, in the future.
0: This is awesome. Mm-hmm. I, I really, really, really like this program.
1: Yeah, and the point was is really because um, the the museum field is still predominantly um, white and you look t- t- talking about class, a lot of um, upper class and well off people, and we know that museums are reflections of culture. You know, they're they're they tell our stories, and it's important to have those multiple voices present, right? And unfortunately, you know, there's a lot of programs like diversity programs that that are made to help, but they come so later on, right? They're undergraduate maybe for seniors, or they're when students are already getting their masters or PhD. And while those are all very important programs, the students kind of have to already know they want to do that in order to get into that program. Our program what's special about it is that it's so early on. It's it's engaging with students practically fresh out of high school. Some of them in some cases, in one case, um, you know, we've had someone who's very young. Um, but the idea is that we're going to m- mentor them early on so that they can visualize their path as a museum professional, So important, you know, and, and, you know, there's a lot of great programs that have been popping up in the past five years alone. And, you know, we're definitely in that lineage, uh, but we think that's what makes our program special.
0: Okay. So well, you said some other, there are other programs out there, any other programs?
1: Yeah. You know, so, um, one that, that I actually even participated was at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. And that's funded by the Mellon Foundation, so that's the, called the um, Mellon Undergraduate Curatorial Fellowship. And that program is a two-year program for students getting their bachelor's degrees who want to be curators. So it's specifically for students of color that want to get into the curatorial and exhibitions field. Um, ours isn't specific to to curatorial and exhibitions. Students can go for, to can be placed in a variety of positions. And the reason why we did that is really because these p- programs that we've noticed that are popping up, a lot of them are focused on the curatorial. I think people generally just think of museums. They think of curators, right? Um, and curators are great. They do a lot, and they do a lot of incredible work. But there are so many other positions.
0: Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of moving parts to a museum.
1: And it's important that we have diverse forces across all levels of these institutions
0: absolutely right Mm -hmm. so you said with this program they get flight and accommodations and a stipend Mm -hmm. uh and they also get academic credit for doing the program yeah this is great Mm -hmm. this is absolutely great okay so let's get on to you yeah sure you went to cal state fullerton Mm -hmm. studied art history and poli sci Mm -hmm. specifically from the art history side to latin american latino art Mm
1: -hmm.
0: okay uh what got you on that path
1: yeah um honestly i think it was not so much a direct path i mean i'd never even i know i work in museums now but i'd never even gone to museums growing up i think i was in high school and i needed an additional elective and there were two electives and it was musical theory and art history and they're both ap courses okay and um i'll kid you i won't lie i tried to do the musical theory one first because (laughs) i thought it'd be so cool to make you know the music that goes in the behind the scenes the scores and films and things like that Uh but that class was hard i didn't i didn't even know how to read music sheet music you know so um i dropped out of that and asked my counselor to swap me into art history i thought hey i i think i like history i i think i like art you know i it was just kind of a a jump right to see and i really fell in love with that a really passionate teacher who um really just instilled with us all these different ways of looking at the world and history and culture
0: so was there a moment in that in that class that you took where you realized oh man this is this is it
1: no i don't think I, i don't think i've ever had a moment like that honestly uh around that time i think i was either a junior or senior in high school and all the people i kid you not in that in that class were like the ap students i was the only student that that was my only ap class right and I didn't even really know what alternative placement or advanced placement meant, right? But they were all applying for college, and so one of my friends said, "Hey, aren't you going to apply for college?" I go, "Oh, I guess I don't know. I was I'm the first in my family to go to college, mm-hmm. um, so I basically just kind of only applied because the people around me were applying, mm-hmm. and I only applied to two schools." Mm-hmm. And when asked what my major was, I didn't know what I want to study. I put art history on there because that was my favorite class that, that, um, that semester. All right. And so, you know, it kind of just happened, you know, it just, I just.
0: That's how it happens for a lot of people. Yeah. More people than you really.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, once I got into Cal State Fullerton, it was a very small program, only three or four full-time faculty. Oh, wow. So they're all really invested in the students and I've kind of figured it out along the way. Yeah. That's great.
0: So with Latin American and Latino art, mm-hmm. um, is there anything that about that that you could share with the listeners that they would find interesting or that they may not know?
1: Yeah. Well, I think uh, first and foremost, the, you know, the difference between those fields. I mean, we think that they're – a lot of people might think that they're similar or they're the same. They're connected, certainly, but Latin American art, specifically being art from – Mexico, Central, South America, you know, extending into the Caribbean, whereas Latino art being looking at the diaspora, right? Looking at those those people, those communities in somewhere like the United States. Latino art. So a lot of there's been a move to call it.
0: Oh, so that's interesting. So you're saying Latin American Mm -hmm. refers to the whole Americas, whereas Latino art
1: refers to what's happening in the united states interesting and it's not it's not as it's not as um black and white i mean certainly someone who's in puerto rico right and then lives there their whole life and then moves here and suddenly they become latino someone from brazil or you know so but but what but what we know is that obviously living in the united states is a completely different context than living in Mexico or living in South America
0: yeah. language, the, for, the the primary language in the United States is English.
1: Yeah. But I mean, even if you are, you know, a, a, a say a Mexican family, I mean, yeah, you, you have your Mexican roots and culture in from from the country of origin. But you know Mexican Americans have a very specific experience. They have a different experience than people Mexicans from Mexico. Correct. And there's a rise um, in academia to call the air, the um, field of study U.S. Latino art. U.S. Um, we also call it Latinx art. The X meaning um, because the language is is Latin. There's there's gender involved, like Latino Latina, and X is a means to make it gender neutral or okay. inclusive. Okay. Um, but the said Latinx, Latinx, and there's that is important because to foreground it in US, US Latinx art, we're not talking about what's happening in Mexico, we're talking about Mexicans living in the United States. Um, so that's a relatively um, not new, but it's a growing field. Um, 20 years ago, there was only I could count the people that were the specialists in that field on my hand, and now there's there's more people studying that mainly because of these same types of diversity programs, but that are also in academia. Um, and now people are getting their master's and and, ho- and also Ph.D. And some of those people are also being recruited to work at the Smithsonian. You know, and, and um, so it's kind of like a full circle in a sense, specifically when you talk about Latino studies and, um, and, and the workforce. Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: <clears throat> now you yourself, you're Mexican-American. Yeah. And you are from uh, the
1: Baja, is it Baja State? Yeah, this, my they, family's like, from Baja, California Baja, California yeah. Ensen- Ensenada Ensenada, there yeah There you go
0: So, when we were doing our little talk before the show I was asking him So, how are the tacos in <laughs> LA different than the tacos in Baja? Uh, and he was like, well, you know, it's not really about tacos here It's about seafood
1: Yeah, I mean, that's. I mean, it's a bit of a loaded question I mean, ta- tacos are different in LA Depending on which part of town you're And you can get a range of different kinds Um, but yeah, I mean, Ensenada, it's, it's, it's a coastal city and a a lot of places on the coast of Baja California are, are very much seafood places. I'm sure, um, maybe people have heard about it through cruises and things. People stop off on Ensenada. It's a big tourist area. Um, but certainly, yeah, um, shrimp, fish. Yes, there's shrimp and fish tacos, um, tortas, different kinds of foods, um, but yeah, Mariscos are pretty big in 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 Baja.
0: Okay, so, Ensenada is uh, is this past the? Okay, good. So Baja is the basically the it's the the state with the peninsula that. Yeah, pops it's out.
1: the strip that kind of extends below California, and yes. and there's a whole body of water between it and Mexico mainland. Okay. So how far
0: south are you from Tijuana? Uh, where I live, or yeah, uh, Ensenada.
1: Oh, Ensenada. From Ensenada to Tijuana is. Um, it's probably about an hour or so drive. All
0: right. How's the surfing there?
1: Surfing? Uh, I'm not a surfer, but I know. I mean, there's. I worked with a photographer um, on a project once who took photos of all of the waves on the coast right here. Um, see, on the coast of of Baja California, there's a main, almost like a toll road or road called the Playas de Tijuana, which is the beaches of tijuana and it's that's the name of the road okay and when you're driving down plaza tijuana you can see all the ocean all the waves and there's some big waves so i imagine surfing can be pretty pretty incredible in different parts um of the coast yeah
0: all right so you ready for the seven questions
1: sure yeah all right question number one book to add to the library book to add to the library i didn't get to see your library so i didn't know if this is already on there or not, but I would say, um, the new Jim Crow, the new Jim Crow by, uh, Mich- Michelle Alexander, excuse me. It's an incredible book about, um, the United States, criminal justice system, specifically black experience in the Americas. Um, it's a pretty in- important book. I see that it's being included in a lot of courses nowadays in college. So the new Jim Crow. And she is a legal scholar and, and black scholar, um, lawyer, and, and activist.
0: Great choice. Mm-hmm. Number two, podcast subscribe.
1: Podcast to subscribe. So I don't listen to a lot of podcasts, but one that I do listen to is The Read. Okay. And the hosts' names are Kid Fury and Crystal. I don't know if you know much about that show. Yeah,
0: I have a, a friend of mine who I've been trying to get on the podcast forever, mm-hmm. Yanni.
1: Mm -hmm. and uh this is one of
0: her favorites right here
1: honestly i think that they've really figured out the the format for our podcast and they're just both of them are just both like really great people and fun people and i think that their dynamic is really what drives that podcast it's a really fun show to (laughs) listen to and they do pop culture politics events um you know, they have a, a section called Black Excellence where they focus and highlight certain black people in, in of the week or that they want to give a shout out to. It's a really great, um, a really great uh, podcast.
0: On average, how long are their episodes?
1: They're like an hour long. Okay. Sometimes they do two hour long episodes and when they're just going off on something or. Sometimes they'll have friends on the show, and so then those are technically longer. But they always try to keep it around an hour, hour, 20 minutes. And
0: during most of the shows, do they bring someone on, like a friend, or is it mostly most of the time it's just them two?
1: Their regular format, it's just them two. Like they'll do um, their Black Excellence, and then they'll do like their overview of the week in terms of current events. And then they have a section called The Read where they sort of vent about about something. Yeah. I
0: like it. All right, number three, something that you didn't know that you needed until you got it.
1: Yeah, this is a hard question. I couldn't think of something. But in LA, I'm a commuter, and I drive a lot. And I have a... My car's from 2004. I don't have a Bluetooth system. But what I found out, and a lot of people don't know about these little things, they're called... um, They're just a wireless Bluetooth device that plugs into, like, an aux port. It's basically, like, an aux cord without the cord. And it just just sticks out, and it connects to your phone, and... it literally is a, a life changer. Like now I have I put my fo I have my phone calls in the car, my podcasts, anything in there. Um I didn't know I needed that, but now I I can't imagine driving in LA without it. I'm telling you, the 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 hidden value of Bluetooth.
0: <laughs> I, I the the um example that I give a lot of guests mm-hmm. is my Bose Bluetooth sound link too that you've been hearing yeah. me play when I go breakfast or taking a shower or whatever changes your life you don't realize you need it
1: but yeah i mean i if that thing breaks i'm like gotta go buy i'm probably gonna go buy it just thinking about it right now i'm probably gonna go buy another one backup just in case because what if they stop making them and then i'm out of luck you know right?
0: mm-hmm. actually that's that's a very real <laughs> that's a very real concern well know?
1: maybe by then i'll have a different car so that i'll already have bluetooth in it but possibly but yeah you still mm-hmm. have a backup you know
0: uh number four Bucket list place to travel. Is a place in the world that you have been that you would recommend the guests mm-hmm. add to their bucket list.
1: Yeah, I would say Guanajuato City, Mexico. Okay, you got to spell that for me. That is, oh man, it's G U A N A J U A T O. Guanajuato. Okay. Guanajuato. Juan-
0: Ju- <laughs> Guanajuato. Mm-hmm. All right, and this is where?
1: That's in Mexico. It's um in the state of Guanajuato, but it's the main cap um city. Okay, one of the main cities. There's a lot of beautiful cities in this state of Mexico, um, but Guanajuato City, you can if you look it up. Um, it's known for all of these beautiful colored houses on a hill. There's like pink and yellow and orange and, and blue houses, and on this beautiful hill. And then at the base of the hill is all the whole city, the little roads and they're small roads. It's almost as if you're like in Italy or something like Rome, and it's old school. Um, so it seems like it's, like, halfway between
0: uh, Guadalajara and Mexico City.
1: Yeah, it's pretty close to Mexico City. You could take it by a bus, maybe, a, like, an hour or so um, from Mexico City. And w- they're famous for having mummies, um, preserved mummies. So in similar, you know, people may hear about, like, Pompeii that had people that were preserved because of volcanic ash in Italy where they had, like, they could see people's houses and their Pompeii. bodies. Yeah, Pompeii. Um so something kind of similar happened in Guanajuato, and it's because the soil was so fertile. So they have um now it's like basically a museum. It's a cultural tourist site, but you can see um you know b- bodies and uh, and and how people lived back in the day in Guanajuato.
0: So you mentioned these. There's some houses on some hills. Is there any volcanoes active or
1: inactive? Around uh here? no, I don't. Not that I know of. I'm, I mean, I'm not a Guanajuato expert. I mean, I was just there. I visited there a couple years ago. Um, on a trip, but um, no, I don't think so. I don't. I'm not sure. <laughs>
0: okay. Oh, no worries. I'm just wondering if there, that's the similarity between Pompeii and uh...
1: yeah. Well, maybe. I mean, I just, I just know it's because the the soil was fertile, but maybe yeah, there has to be a reason why it's like that.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Number five, fifty mile detour restaurant anywhere in the world.
1: Yeah. So I'm gonna say something pretty local to where I live. I mean, I live in Southern California, and. Um, There is an international food chain called The Loving Hut. It's a vegan, Asian, and Western fusion uh, chain. However, if you go to one and then you go to another another one, they're not going to have the same menu. Because they allow the people who run their location to customize their own menus and have whatever's freshest available to them. So, if you're ever in Southern California, stop by The Loving Hut in the city of Orange... Okay. Um, yeah. this cross streets are. Let me think. Uh, Chapman Avenue and Tustin Avenue. Oh, you know, and, you know the exact. Yeah, page of, it huh? is one of my favorite places to eat. Uh, I've been going there since probably the year that they opened, and it's probably been maybe about six or seven years now. And it's a pretty cool place.
0: I like it. You said vegan Asian.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they, I mean, they have a lot of Vietnamese and Thai dishes. So it's, it's just broadly um Asian. But then they also have like burgers and um sandwiches and you can get a vegan Philly cheesesteak. <laughs> right.
0: And they I'm assuming they use tofu.
1: They do different things for they uh for the chili, Philly cheesesteak they do like some other kind of meat. They it's different kinds. Of, gotcha. Yeah.
0: All right. Number six, your number one skill.
1: My number one skill, so this is something's just
0: uh something that you worked at. The thing that you, you worked yeah. at the most,
1: that you feel that you are the <clears> most
0: uh <throat> Your best craft.
1: Yeah, I think both my skills and talents have to do with a lot of, like, with communication. I think my number one skill that I've developed is um, – sounds kind of dorky, but um, it's correspondence, like, emailing, professional emailing, and, like, uh, how to, like, do – how to write about things. I've learned – has really helped me to, um, through my own work experience, the admin side of the museum world – um because there's a lot of that happens and you got to communicate things people get frustrated real easily um and so something that i've worked on is how to communicate things to people
0: so you're you're you have a proficiency in uh, communicating tone
1: yeah and uh, and how to frame an issue um to make people feel like they're you're not shoving them off to say oh you suck I, uh, you didn't do this right or whatever it's it's an art and a skill honestly and um, I look at some emails I sent maybe like in 2014 and I look at my emails now and I'm like, whoa, I Your really, yeah. <laughs> the tone in those emails, uh, in the earlier ones are not, not good.
0: Yeah. That, that, and that's, that's so important. I find that it takes me longer than I would like to craft emails because I yeah. always reading and rereading and just to make sure that. I'm not being miscommunicated What I'm trying to say
1: a lot of a lot of jobs nowadays so much is is based on computers and emails and stuff. And so that's something that you kind of it's very helpful to develop over the years. So I think that's something that I've worked on. I really
0: like that. I really like that. Are you number one talent is nature?
1: Yeah. So related to that, um, I'm really social and I could pretty much talk to anybody about anything. (laughs) And that's just something that I've always been able to do. Um, So I think, yeah put me in a room with someone and I'm not going to be awkwardly standing there. I'll probably figure something out. That's
0: good. And so does this <laughs> translate to a, a, a robust social media profile?
1: No, no, actually I'm pretty, I'm pretty low key on social media. <laughs> it's more like, you know, face to face, face to face. And I got a loud laugh. So I, I always <laughs> joke that uh, I'm not laughing too loud right now, but I always joke that, you know, I'm having a good time when I'm not because my you'll, you'll see me laughing, you know, I'm not faking my laugh. Um, but yeah, so I think both my talents and skills are related to communication. Yeah,
0: and that's great. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly from a professional standpoint, from a personal <laughs> standpoint. That's that's definitely these are these are two invaluable skills right here. Yeah, Seriously, yeah. this is great.
1: They've gotten me far enough. All right.
0: Uh, so, do you have any social media or any websites you want to plug for yourself or for the program for the school?
1: Um. Honestly, I'd like to promote our our museum. Okay. You know, the Vincent Price Art Museum so it's just Vincent Price Art Museum.org um because we do a lot of exhibitions and programs about a lot of different things that i think is pretty important uh we're looking at culture in in a very expanded way and i i mean i'm obviously biased cuz i work there but i think our exhibitions are doing things that big museums are not yet doing i think that that's something special looking at ways that we can look at culture um and different um ethnic groups and different class groups in dialogue with one another um is incredibly important to focus on togetherness and connections versus, versus sort of these, you know, little pocket stories or divisive things. You know, I think that we do a lot of great exhibitions. Um, and then you'll learn about it. You can learn about our internship program on that website too. Perfect. perfect. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. As far as, um, my old social media, I mean, you can find me anywhere. Um, my username's hooligan disco. <laughs>
0: uh, one L or two L's.
1: Hooligan has 1L. Hooligan Disco. Disco. Wow.
0: What why Hooligan Disco?
1: Yeah, uh there's a long story there. Uh it just has to do with um I think about in 20 I guess 2008, I had a music blog. I I deleted it. It doesn't exist anymore, but it was a lot of electronic music from Europe and Latin America and one of the producers when asked what his music, how to categorize his genre, he goes, I don't know. It's a bunch of hooligans loving disco music. And so I just love the way that sounded. I put hooligan disco. Um, and it's funny. You know who they are. You know where they're going. <laughs> the hooligans going to the disco. I like that.
0: Yeah. Do you still listen to a lot of EDM?
1: No, not really. I, it's funny. I've totally kind of shifted. But, um, you know, I just, I when all the accounts were being made, when I made, a say, a Instagram or a facebook or twitter any of these things i just kept putting the same username so if you look it up you'll find all my stuff <laughs> um,
0: okay. great so joseph thank you so much for coming on the podcast
1: yeah of course it's been a great trip uh just yeah. you know and despite the shutdown <laughs> right
0: so hopefully next year when you come back we we'll get you on a podcast yeah. next january
1: it will have another story exactly huh? yeah exactly
0: so well ladies and gentlemen thank you for listening on behalf of joseph uh Come back and see us next time. Mm -hmm. We'd love to have you. Mm -hmm. Take care. Mm -hmm.